Well, hello and welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. We are here in beautiful St. Helena, but we are not talking about that today. We are talking about another very beautiful region, the region of the Loire Valley. And to do that, I've enlisted a little help from two guys who make wine here, but also know something about the Loire Valley, which... I have to say, I've not visited since I was about 13 years old on an EF school trip. And I remember it being so beautiful and like dotted with castles and we we tasted some cool stuff, even though I'm like 13 years old. But like, that's it. And I feel like I could hardly consider that a proper wine trip. So in order to not completely embarrass myself, I have brought you guys in who actually know the region and have created a label that is really sort of an homage to the region in a lot of ways. So welcome to the show, John and Reed Scupney of Lang and Reed. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Amanda. My name's Reed Scupney. I'm with Lang and Reed Wine Company. I'm John Scupney. Father of Reed. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that your title now? No, I just wanted to define it just in case yeah. you could get confused about okay. it. <laughs> so. Is there ever confusion about that? No. no. Mostly mail and, and DMV bills. Your given born name is John. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Go by me. Exactly. And so, and the label Lang and Reed was born out of your middle name and your brother. Yep. So middle my brother's name. Jersey Lang Scutney and I'm John Reed Scutney. And we have a younger sister, Alex, who missed the boat completely. Hmm. And so we'll figure that out. We're still working on that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She kind of touched on it earlier. Lang and Reed's been around for about 25, 26, 27 years. 30th harvest is this year. Okay, so almost 30. Yeah. And mom and dad, John and Tracy, started Lang and Reed kind of with the idea to bring Cab Franc to the front of the stage, one could say. It's a singular varietal that really holds its own. And when done correctly and done playfully, it's really, really enjoyable. It is. And at the time that we were exploring this uh cabernet franc had sort of been left off the side of the track cabernet sauvignon has always been king in napa valley merlot had kind of come in in the 70s the other bordeaux grapes were always sort of bit players and i think tracy and i just always thought it would be really a shame from our experiences before we came here to let cabernet not have its moment in the sun so i mean that's kind of a mixed metaphor in yeah. some way, but california sun exactly plus I had worked, and as Tracy did too, with some pretty noted Cabernet Sauvignon producers that we knew exactly what that kind of paradigm was. And we really wanted to make something that was a little bit more, you know, lighter off its feet, a little more, not necessarily not so serious. Sometimes in where we live, we, I feel like we take ourselves too serious. And wine is part of joy in life. That was the whole idea was the first Cabernet Franc we made was the Tuesday, Wednesday wine for a certain set, Saturday, Sunday for another set. But the idea was to pull a cork and drink it. Yeah. And and not leave it on the counter half full. Right. I think that is what wine is made for, right? Or Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> we have some wine in a glass. Hopefully you guys should have some wine in your glass at home as well. And we'll let you know what that is in a second. But actually, we do have some Chenin Blanc in our glass from you guys right now, which I have to say is delicious. Amanda touched on it earlier. We're talking about the Loire Valley now. And what we found in the Loire Valley is they have many different regions. It's an east to west river or west to east, however you look really at it. Really long. Very long. And so if you take the Napa Valley, which is north to south, and you have your certain ABAs, they have entire regions that are the equivalent to our ABAs. And each of those little regions in the Loire Valley up the, up the Loire River, 
you are given a certain terroir and a certain climate that does really well with a certain varietal or certain varietals, a red and a white usually. Mm -hmm. And in, in Chino and Saumur, in that area, Cabernet Franc is king. Bourguet. Well, yeah, but in Bourguet. Yep. We don't talk about Bourguet. Okay. It competes with Chino. And so we found that the Loire Cab Francs were standalone wines. They were both thoughtful. They were both playful. They were all serious. They were 100%. Um, they were 100%. And that's kind of what we've been running with since then, obviously in California and Napa Valley specifically. Amanda mentioned the homage, which it truly is, because we always recognize that we were inspired by what happens in the Loire, that in Napa Valley and California, anywhere outside of the Loire, we can't make the same wines that they can. Nor should we try. Nor can they do what we do. So it's a it's not necessarily a hybrid, but it's a you know a synthesis of the our love for the area and how we possibly could interpret similar ethos here mm -hmm. and not interpret some of the ethos. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you guys do it so well. I don't know that they're necessarily comparable regions in many ways, but it'll be fun to sort of see them side by side. I mean, I think the Loire Valley as a place that makes wines that really showcase their terroir, right? I mean, they're, they're wines that show their place. They're wines of nuance, of character. There's a lot of really interesting things happening in the Loire Valley. And of course, I think one of my favorite things to talk about is this notion of what grows together goes together, which we've done an entire episode on. You should definitely check it out. Um, and the Loire Valley, as we talked about in that episode, really showcases some of the most perfect examples of wines that go with the food that is also made in the same place. But before we get any further, we have to talk about what is going on in the wine world. Buckle up. There's a few things. Uh, we'll start with, you know, we've done an episode on Portugal, so Porto, where we get all of our delicious ports. Very exciting. Quinta de Naval, the notorious port producer, it sounds like they are releasing a 2021 vintage. They're declaring it. Uh, this comes right after the news that Grams is also bottling a 2021 bottling called the Stone Terraces from the Quinta dos Malvidos Vineyard. And I, what's interesting, and for those of you who haven't listened to this episode, you should definitely go back and listen to it because I think it really highlights what's going on in Portugal and, you know, what declaring a vintage actually means. But I think what's interesting is the fact that this is the 11th consecutive declaration of a vintage for Quinta de Naval. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool, right? Um, I don't know if that speaks to what's going on in the world of climate. I don't know if that speaks to economics. Um, although, you know, you don't you don't just get to say as a producer that you're declaring a vintage. It does have to be tasted and approved by the IVDP. But I am curious, like as wine producers, it's an interesting notion that a government or organization would get to say, whether or not you can actually declare a vintage of wine that you've personally made. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, that's weird. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. Um, I can justify it by saying we have some of the same sort of protocols in, in regards to our AVAs and our, our labeling stuff like that, where we, we do have to fall within a spectrum or a, a bell curve of certain blending things. But the fact that an outside source would say, I can put this on my label or not is pretty weird. That being said, I do like the protectionist side of it. Sure. 
because if you you pay to play yeah right and if you look at vintage in the history of it vintage port is the top of the the heap it's a, a very singular wine and mm-hmm. me growing up in that era where you had to know every good vintage of port or secondary vintage of declared port the undeclared winds up going into the thing that they really make money at which is the tawnies and the ruby yeah. so by perspective uh I was a wine steward at a restaurant in Kansas City in the 70s. And Quinta de Noval, what was hot at that time, because this was in 78, 79, was the 63. 63 is considered one of the greatest vintages of that mid-century era. And I brought in vintage port to be served by the glass, which was an unheard of concept at that time, except for cordials and and after-dinner wine. So I brought my first wineless from there. I didn't have the Quinta de Noval. Oh my gosh. If, oh yeah. if Tracy and I sold over a hundred dollars worth of wine on the floor in a night, in a night, I would bring home a bottle of either 63 Quinta de Noval or 63 Dao. So here's the most expensive wine by the glass in the list from 1978. It was Dao 63 at $3.50 a glass. Um, I know you can't see the prices of these wines on this list that John has here, but you all would be wildly jealous to see <laughs> what they were going for back then. What you'll really want is the magnum of 70 Lafitte for 125. <laughs> the fact that he saved a, a menu from mid 70s shows you how much of my old homework that I keep getting these days. <laughs> One thing I would bring up too is uh, I think technological advances Agreed. in, in, in vinification and, and viticulture. And viticulture, uh, hand in hand. We're going to use those interchangeably. Because I do, I do truly believe that the best wines start in the vineyard. Yeah. You know, we're just shepherds. And then also, this would be a, a question for you, Amanda. Have they replanted those vineyards in the last 20 years? And they're finally coming mm-hmm. online? Great question. I don't know. I mean, it is an old region. Um, and I mean, there are replantings, but also not like a super easy region to replant. You've got slopes that can be like as steep as 30 to 40 degrees. In the case of Quinta de Noval, it could possibly have been because I believe it was the Simmingtons who own it. Uh, Simmingtons do not own Quinta de Noval. It's like one of the only ones they don't own. <laughs> That's true, but one of the big houses. Oh, yes. But it was owned by the Van Zeller family and they sold it in maybe the early 80s. Mm. And so that might have been one thing because Christian Van Zeller has his own production mm. in Port now, but incredible property. I mean, it is considered the DRC of Port. Yeah, no, I love Quinta de Naval. In fact, when when I worked at Press, we were an all Napa Valley wine list, except for a few things. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You got to bring a ringer in. Right. You know, Quinta de Naval was always a wine that we would love to have vintage bottlings of because they were just so spectacular and, and really did show place and vintage. Uh, next up. Brad Pitt, our friend Brad Pitt, he's been doing some stuff with the Perrin family for the last decade or so. They've got Miraval Rosé, then they teamed up with Pierre Peters to do the Fleur de Miraval Champagne. Now they're teaming up with someone else and the Perrin family, of course. This guy, Tom Nickel, he's a master distiller. They're making some gin from the French Riviera, which uh, gin seems to be like the hot thing right now. Winemakers and wine people... They just like seem to really love it because of the aromatics. So I don't I don't know if this is like a thing that we are about to see in more wine regions, but I'm also kind of here for it. Are you? Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a sense of time and a sense of place. You uh, come August, I, I get the tar weed in Napa. Um, you know, the star thistles are, are shutting down and there's a seasonal 
bouquet of smells that we get that is representative of where we live and, and that's represented in the wines, uh, I'm absolutely for it. So did yeah. you want to comment about another celebrity beverage? What's, I'm <laughs> excited. <laughs> Do you follow the tablets? Well, I have certain rules. I worked for one of the celebrity you know, owners in my lifetime working for Francis Miller Coppola, which to me, I don't know why I justified, but it seems like a slightly different story. They just came here wanting to buy a cottage and wound up by the Ground Zero Cabernet Sauvignon Vineyard in Napa Valley. But I kind of think it's like people who sell their winery, they should have a law that you can't do it again. So if you've made a gazillion dollars making movies, you know, and he has, it's like, why do you need to put your name on this? I mean, do it on a tennis shoe or something. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, anyways, not to take away celebrity wine and stuff, but, you know, we're all still trying to roll a rock up the hill. Yeah. And they're sitting on the Riviera. Yeah. No, anyways, not to diss it too hard. <laughs> no, I think they can take it. They're chilling on the Riviera right now, right? All right. This last article is a bit of a doozy, so buckle up. Uh, for 50 Swiss francs, you can be led by a Swiss award-winning perfumer named Patrick Stubler, who will help you get a breath of fresh air and tell you how to savor every note and flavor in it. The world's first mountain air sommelier is taking you guys on a hike in Switzerland. He's going to help you uncover the unique scent of the region from its distinctly crisp morning summer scents in its verdant valleys to the calming resinous top notes found in the lush florals on the tour. Stubler will also share the different factors that go into the region's particular scents, including air quality, altitude, temperature, and humidity. You know, yeah. I hate to tell you this. I know we make fun of these things sometimes, but I'm really down with that. I kind of wanted to hate on it. I saw the headline and I was like, this feels a little gimmicky. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, that actually sounds pretty amazing, right? Because yeah. how many times do we walk around these beautiful regions and we're like, what does that smell? Reed Neck could probably do it here. There you go. No, we, we not, both, let's not do that. That's not do that. <laughs> we uh, just being in wine and, and it's like, you, you're never going to learn everything, but there's a point where you think, oh, you know, like oh, I'm getting a little cynical. I'm getting a little tired. Da, da, da. And about 15 years ago, maybe I sort of had this revelation that I was trained as an artist. So a lot of stuff was visual to me. It still is. It's like everything was based upon what I looked at and saw and could observe. And then I realized after at that time, somewhere near 35 years in the business that my nose had a training that I wasn't even aware of. I knew more than I knew I knew. Yeah. And Alexander Schmidt, shout out to him, brilliant guy and very sardonic. So I took his first level classes and it just completely changed my paradigm about observation, both with your eyes and your nose and all of your senses and that factor. So much though, that for Christmas one year, I took Reed and Jersey mm -hmm. with us to the first class again. It was an expensive Christmas <laughs> gift. <laughs> we must have had a good year. That year. Had, so they, yeah, it, was, it is a muscle that needs exercising. And I think that's one of the things we talk about tasting wine that people are like, oh, I don't smell anything. You do smell something. You just can't assign just can't that smell. word to it, which is the most frustrating thing. Anyway, that's what's happening in Switzerland. For 50 Swiss francs, it all can be yours. Sort of a steal compared to the Alexander Schmidt class. <laughs> <laughs> this is always my cue to remind everyone to like, subscribe, and review this podcast. Uh, we can't do it without you. We really appreciate you being here. But it's also super helpful when you leave us a little comment. Tell us that you're loving the show. Tell us what you're loving about the show. Uh, and if you liked these guys, maybe leave a comment about 
my friends John and Reed here from Lang and Reed. We are going to jump into the Loire Valley in just a second. So if you don't have your wine already, now is the time to grab that gorgeous Chinon in the Wine Access and Filtered Podcast Wine Club shipment. And if you're not a member of the Wine Club, this is your moment to change that, fix that. Grab the link. It's in the description. Click it and sign up. We have a lot of fun. I select four wines. They correspond with each of the episodes. And um, I pick them myself. And I have to say, I think they're pretty darn good. So grab that wine and we'll see you all in a second. So we're talking about the Loire Valley, a region located in the northwest of France, just southwest of Paris, north of Bordeaux, and neighbors to the west of Burgundy. It's really, really close to Burgundy, actually. If you Google this region, the first images that you're going to find are the idyllic, Disney-like chateaus that dot the Loire Valley that runs east to west through the region and then drops straight into the Atlantic. And as a lover of wine, I mean, this is this is a region that's going to give you a lot. Wines of character that show their place that are mostly very affordable. And my personal favorite, wildly good with cheese especially the goat cheese, which is really one of the hallmarks of this region. Uh, There are several grapes that you could easily identify the region with as they all grow incredibly well here. I mean, it is unbelievable how much they do well here. Sauvignon Blanc, which you'll recognize as Sancerre or even Puy Fumé. You've got Chenin Blanc from Vouvray or even Sauvignons. And then one of my personal favorite oyster wines, Muscadet, made from the Melon de Bourgogne grape. But the wine that we'll be drinking today and should be in your glass is one of my favorite wines on the planet, a Chinon, which is going to be 100% Cabernet Franc. This is the 2020 Domaine Charles Joguet Cuvée Terroir. I am a huge fan of this producer and I'm smelling it. Um, immediately I'm already in. But what do you guys think of the nose? Does it smell like Cabernet Franc to you? I think it's gorgeous. It's got the it's got the a little bit of tar, violets, crushed rose petals, wet cement. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, fresh rain, low yeah. graphite, which uh, is the same sort of class. Yeah. We're, we're nerding out here. No, this is good, and uh, I'm glad that you said classic because this is actually the textbook Chinon, the cuvee terroir that is often used for the tasting portion of the Masters of Wine exam. So, this is a wine that's often sort of used to showcase what Chinon can and maybe should be. And also pretty unobscured by it, because this is the entry level. Yes. yes, the entry level. They make, obviously, higher-end cubes. This is also a Kermit Lynch wine. And we have talked about Kermit Lynch as being a great trust agent for European wines. I'm with you on the, the tar, the roses. I mean, for me, Cabernet Franc is always – the giveaway is it's, it's floral, right? It's very mm-hmm. rosy, but there's something sort of stern underneath of it. It's not just this, like, this fruity floral bomb. There is something a little bit dark and brambly under there, yeah. which I really love at this wine. We, we literally just opened this. Um, I think it's only going to continue to improve with age. I don't know about you, but I love Loire Valley – Cabernet Franc, especially Chinon, just like a slight chill in it. I see you warming your glass a little bit, so maybe it's a little too cold for you. No, no, no. I just I want to see it open up because I'm going to drink this really fast. I'd agree with Amanda. This is especially the specific single vineyards from Joguet. You might not want to have a, too much of a chill, but we oftentimes drink our red wines too warm anyways. Mm-hmm. They will open up and be more aromatic as they warm up, but this terroir cuvee is definitely – it's not – 
simple, but it's more of a van de Swaff than a, a wine to age for an enormous amount of time. It is their entry-level wine. It's it's specifically from one of Charles' first partners, which was his father's bookkeeper, uh, Genet. His daughter, Genet's daughter, actually owns this vineyard. So the base wine is from there, and it's a little bit out of the area that Cezalie, I think, Jogay's located in. It's a little bit outside of that region. But they also use this wine to blend other parts that come from other vineyards. So this is a, a, an amalgam of a lot of different Chinon terroir. The primary is from, I think it's Genet Vineyard. But it's always been a really cracking wine. It's delicious. I think as we're heading into warmer months, a lot of people maybe want to move out of red wine. Like, this is an easy way to stick with it. I hinted at the reason that you guys are here. Lang and Reed is, of course, an homage to the Loire Valley, but you spent a lot of time in the Loire Valley making wine there, living there. I think you got married there. Got married there, yeah. So we we were lucky enough that I was 13. When or, lived, yeah, 13, 13 14. 14. We, lived, we lived there for a summer. They hauled us out there kicking and screaming. My brother was probably 10. We didn't want to go, you know, left our friends, left our neighborhood and all that and then we lived Last in summer we lived in a crappy little chateau um in the middle 11th of, century chateau yeah it was it was old and haunted and it was scary and we had nothing to do and they left us all day um, and they, they left us on bikes to go wine tasting and they left there was four kids it was two families but it was it was the halcyon summer it was warm and there were cicadas and it was it rained uh, in the summer it rained it rained once a week which was wild that doesn't happen in california and we made lifelong friends. We met the Baudry family and we had a blast. And so cut to 2008, uh, my wife and I, my, my fiance at the time, we had just graduated college, sold everything we owned and moved to Chinon, kind of on a whim to get out of New Zealand and here in Napa. And the Baudrys had always said, when your sons are old enough, send them out for a harvest. And so we did. We made it about 10 months before we ran out of money. And at the end of the 10 months, we, we got married there. Yeah. And uh, it was fantastic. And we honestly had nothing to do. So I worked harvest for Baudry, which was, you know, 60, 90 days. A difficult harvest, too. Yeah, it was a tough. It was quick. It rained. And I was picking grapes, which I had never done. That gets old real quick. Working in a cellar where only French was spoken. Yeah. And so it was it was a, an on-ramp of, you know, we were there for two or three weeks and then harvest started and I didn't speak French. Luckily, most people were able to help us out. And as soon as you learn the the polite, please, thank you, I'm looking for, and, and tr- actually try, they jump in. And then winter hit, and I went and pruned in Lorraine, which was even worse than picking grapes in Chinon. Um, you had to snow. Kick, we had to kick the snow. snow. Yeah, we had to kick the snow <laughs> off the vines. And then in on March 28th, we got married Next. that following spring in Chinon, and it was amazing. What that gave us was an innate love for uh, the terrain, Chinon in general, uh, but Saumur, Bourguet, uh, Vouvray, that area, which is all about 20, 30 minutes away from each other, we would like to buy an apartment there tomorrow if we could. It's, yeah. it's amazing. And it's, it's rustic provincial France, but also it's kind of a second home. You know, the people are welcoming. The wines are amazing. The food's great. Everything about it was magical. Interesting. I Like I said, I have not been to the Loire Valley in any sort of capacity that would allow me to formulate an opinion around wine or even, you know, like as an adult. Right. But I remember the chateau and I remember the river. But help me sort of like repaint the picture of this place. So the Loire Valley is the, the Royal Valley. So it's, as we said earlier, it's east to west and every bend in the river, one of the royalty would build their hunting lodge, which would be a castle. And 
you just kind of meandered your way up the river and you just had this awesome medieval French booze cruise to all your buddies' houses. <laughs> Truly. And, and it changed hands left and right. And then it's all kind of anchored around Chinon, which is the Chateau Chinon, which was a fortress, a, not a cat. It was a, it was actual, a castle castle. And it had never been turned into the party houses. Mm. It was a fortress. Ninth century, eighth century. The others were kind of 13th, 14th yeah. century where they, like Napa Valley is the playground of San Francisco. Yeah. The Loire Valley was the playground to yep. the Parisians. It set the stage for what you see today in this groundbreaking wine that they're making there because it's always been a sleeper and it's been well-made. It doesn't have the pomp and circumstance of Burgundy. It doesn't have, you know, the snootiness of Bordeaux, but the wines are solid and they're gaining in quality because people are starting to take it seriously. And when, when people start to deviate from the two big, you know, three big ones, if you include champagne, they start noticing fun little wines that are entry-level wines like this guy right here that you can afford. Yeah, and, <laughs> and drink readily and has something behind it. I think it's also an interesting region in the sense that there's a lot of different types of grapes, right? It's not like Burgundy where we've got like two or Champagne where there's just being Champagne made. We're talking about Sauvignon Blanc, Chenin Blanc, and so many different styles. I mean, you have your sweet wines coming from Chenin Blanc. You've got Cremant de Loire, which makes the Loire Valley the second largest producer of sparkling wine in France just after Champagne, which is crazy. So lots of different styles of wine. And it's always been interesting to me that the Loire Valley sort of stays a sleeper, despite, I think, all of the proclamation that sommeliers and wine lovers have made about it. I mean, it still falls a little bit under the radar in a lot of ways for those who are maybe not in the industry. So I think with that said, what do you think tourism is like for people who are maybe wanting to go taste tomorrow that are not in the industry? Is it approachable? Is it fun? I mean, obviously, you're not, maybe not going to sit down with the Beaudries uh, in the way that you guys did, but how does it maybe compare to somewhere like Napa? I think it's case by case. Yeah. You know, if you come to Napa, which is, you know, Disneyland, obviously, you'll you'll have cookie cutter tastings. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll have culture tastings or you'll have kind of walking tasting. Like here at Lane and Reed, it's, it's my dad or my mom or my wife, and then that's about it. And it's pretty pretty cut and dry. If you walk at the Beaudry's, uh, you know, Bernard still holds court. And he's really? a little bit older than me. Yeah. 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 He does. And then if uh, the, the winery that I, I work at, uh, Elise Winery, it's it's all of us. And so we'll be, you know, labeling bottles or cleaning floors right. or something. And, and there'll be a group walking by and it's all shaking hands. Yeah. Everybody has their own spot. Everything's different. But I, I do think that the hospitality aspect of Napa um, is really what we have going for us. The wines are great. They're either going to sell or not, but the connection we have with people here, we wouldn't be here if we didn't want to be. And you think the same is true in the Loire Valley? Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and well, they'll be fine if the tourists don't show up. Like they're, they're just doing their thing. <laughs> they were just blown away that we wanted to taste their wines yeah. and we're interested in the story. So if you're going to the Loire Valley, which as we've talked about and you alluded to is quite large, where do you think, where's the, where should the tourists go? Should they go to Chinon? I, I would say Vouvray. The wines coming out of Vouvray are, are phenomenal and it's, it's all regional and it's all terroir driven. And, yep. Yeah, Chenin Blanc. Chenin Blanc. And my fascination with Chenin Blanc is it does really well with biodynamic and it's so versatile. When we were there, I think at, at our wedding, we had Chenin five different ways. A pounder, white, a serious white, a serious sweet. And no, you started with bubbles. Well, yeah, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Okay. It's a blur. 
we had cheap bubbles for the dance floor and then formal bubbles for the taste. And it was all Chenin Blanc, uh, made by various producers in the area, Pinon, uh, Uwe Liu. You know, I think that versatility and the, the connection with the land is really attractive. It, it was the breadbasket of France throughout the millennia and the world wars and all that. And, and the, the farmers, they're going from wheat to grain or to grapes. They've taken kind of this holistic biodynamic approach. And they've not been forced by it. You know, they're not being forced to go by dynamic. They're finding they produce better grapes yep. and better wine by being more attuned with the land. You know, we talked a little bit about all the different varieties, but I think one thing I'd be remiss to not talk about is, of course, the fact that we've got Cabernet Franc and Chenin Blanc being made in the Loire Valley, and also Cabernet Franc and Chenin Blanc being made in other parts of the world like California. Uh, what's the difference? You know, what are we talking about in terms of how these wines present, how they could be made differently, and maybe what you would experience in a glass of Langen Reed versus something from the Loire Valley? Dad's been doing this for almost 30 years now, this this whole winemaking thing. And I jumped in about a decade, 15 years ago. And what I'm seeing is where there's an acceptance with him to, it was always uh, Loire-style Cab Franc, Loire-style Cab Franc. And then at, at about 10, 15 years, it started to shift to Loire-inspired Cab Franc and stylistically inspired Cab Franc and Chenin Blanc. And that was a really good change because we are, we're Northern California. We're Napa Valley. We have different soils. We have different sun. We have different winemaking facilities. We have different needs. If we produce this out of California, somebody would think it, think it was flawed. If this was a Napa wine, someone would be like, wow, that's weird. And that does a complete disjustice to what both sides of the pond are doing because we produce wines that are California sun-kissed. And what we've done is we've kind of moved our vineyards and our sourcing to areas that produce a, a style of wine that we really enjoy. And that's usually higher acid, lower alcohols, the fruity violet notes, the potpourri, the crushed tarragon. You rarely find that on the valley floor from Calistoga. But you can Ooh, find that on the hillsides. You can find it in in, in the Carneros area, Oak, Oak Knoll, and the Sugarloaf Vineyard specifically, which has been our flagship from the get-go. And we're able to coax these kind of Loire-inspired flavors, which is not necessarily Loire flavors. They're just Cab Franc flavors. Well, and you mentioned rain in the summertime, right? As you said, something we, we do not probably won't see ever... rain until October. Hopefully November. Sorry, sorry. Didn't want to jinx it. Yeah. We're happy for rain, but... When we talk about different wine regions and their climates and what kind of precipitation they're getting, I mean, that does influence these wines pretty significantly. So, you know, you'll find these little pockets that are cooler, but how much cooler is it in the Loire Valley? Is it cooler at all? It is. If you think about the latitudes... It's more on the line of southern Maine and, and Washington in terms of the way the ring goes. However, you have to also put into the factor that the Atlantic is a fairly warm ocean and the Pacific is a very cold ocean. Yeah. So we have a little bit more severe nocturnal diurnal. We have more of a Mediterranean climate than in Loire. So mm -hmm. we have very dry days, moist nights with fog and no rain in the summertime. They have rain, just uh, Bordeaux also has rain all. They, we have about 30 inches, 35 inches a year. They have the same. Ours just stops in May and goes till November. 
And it actually makes the case for organic pretty easy because one of the things in organic farming is not only not using herbicides and pesticides, but also mildicides. Yeah. And they really can't get away from that there because of that humidity process. But I didn't realize this until Bastille Day of 1997. We took a bike ride, the infamous bike ride to Usay. We want to get back to Shinon for time for the fireworks for Bastille Day. Everybody was tired. We'd gone 30, 40 miles on these bicycles. It was awful. It, you guys, yeah, it's, you still think it's awful. We, we had a ball. Anyways, we had to stay up until like 11 o'clock for it to get dark enough mm. for the fireworks. Mm-hmm. And that, like, oh, light bulb, we're in a pretty northern, yeah. long, mm-hmm. you know, we're in a northern spot. It's a cool region. That's Cabernet Sauvignon does not have a long enough season yeah. to get ripe there. It may in the future... This wine was a lot more sinewy and more light 10 years ago than it is today. It could be the new, it could be Kevin, the new winemaker there. To answer back to your one question about the same grape grown in different regions, I, I go back to a lecture I was in that Pascaline Lapeltier was, New York sommelier, who's from the Loire and one of the greatest champions of the Loire Valley. And you would think she would have this sort of provincial attitude about that, that, oh, the best Shannon comes from, you know, Vouvray or Mont-Louis or Savignier. But I was doing a Shannon Blanc tasting with her, and there were 10 wines from all, Shannon's from all over the world. And she said, it, it isn't even particular to Shannon, but each varietal will express itself in a different way in the different place that it's grown. And we have to become mature enough to understand that, that, one place is not necessarily better than the other. It's just different expression. And they can both rise to the occasion mm. of yeah. which is to give pleasure, right? Sure. It is, yeah. 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 And I, I think it's important. I love that you sort of evolved the motto to be inspired by because I think it's beautiful to see even in a region like Napa that is so different from the Loire Valley that there is still inspiration being drawn and being done in such a beautiful way. And to your point, you know, the Shannon is beautiful. It's different than you might find in the Loire Valley, but it's still really beautiful. And same with Cabernet Francs. You know, I love this expression of Chinon, but I love the Langenried Cabernet Francs as well. They're so fun and they're delicious and, and made with great integrity. I should mention, you know, we talked a little bit about, well, we touched on Puy Fume. We do have an episode coming up with the Puy Fume. You guys won't be here unless you want to call in. But we do have an episode on, on Puy Fume and some other sort of, undiscovered wine gems of yeah. bigger regions. And I think this sort of lends itself to that, right? We've talked about Vouvray, we've talked about Chinon, we, we mentioned Sancerre, but you know, Puy Fumé sort of like falls even more so under the radar, right? So well, the, the Loire Valley story does not end here. It actually continues thematically throughout this shipment. So if you have a Puy Fumé and you want to jump into it now, you certainly can. You can just grab another bottle later. This has been such a treat. Thank you, man. And for us too. Yeah. yeah. This, you know, we we talked about having winemakers on this season of the podcast and how do we do it? How do we make it interesting? And I love this idea of bringing two people who are making wine so beautifully in California and getting you to talk about nothing really California. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's where we live. <laughs> for those who don't know the wines that these guys make, Lang and Reed often featured on Wine Access. So if you do see them, grab them while you can because there isn't a lot of them to go around. And when they do make an appearance, they often disappear pretty quickly. 
Uh, guys, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I look forward to cheersing a glass with all of you out there again soon. Cheers, guys. Thank you.